Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. This is the first episode of our next four years series here on The Weeds. We're going to be looking ahead to what to expect from a Joe Biden administration across a whole range of policy initiatives. Uh, my first guest, Carl Smith, is an economist that uh, focuses on tax policy, the labor market, macroeconomics, and even better, he's a Republican. Uh, so we were able to sit down and talk about the prospects for deal making on the budget, what kind of good can come out of a divided government situation. And I think it's just a great way to start thinking about the next four years. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and my guest today, Carl Smith, uh, has been on the show before. He is a Bloomberg opinion uh, columnist, uh, formerly uh, with with the Tax Foundation and other places. I think, importantly, for our purposes, he's a he's a really smart guy on the economy. He also knows uh, some Republicans in Congress and what they think, uh, which I think is important to think about. Um, I think a lot of us put a lot of work into thinking about what a Biden administration would look like, anticipating a bigger Democratic gain uh, down ballot. And we are now looking more at an era in which economic policy, especially because it has, um, there's there's just like deadlines, right? Like funding expires for things, there are debt ceilings. You can't just not do fiscal policy. You're, you're always doing something uh, and it's going to be a bipartisan something. But I wanted to start actually with where we were maybe a year ago or at, at the beginning of the year. I was looking back over over my notes and like what what I was trying to write in February was like try to convince Democrats that the economy was actually doing well and that if they if they ran against Trump by trying to insist that like oh actually it's all terrible they were going to look like morons and they should try to like just because there's a good economy, like, doesn't mean there aren't things you things you can fix. Uh, but I know you've you've sort of looked back on the on the election and tried to make this point that Democrats are maybe underrating how good people had it. Right. I mean, so one of the the easiest and simple things to look at is um, before COVID hit, um, Gallup did these surveys that are like, you know, are you better off than you were at that time three years ago? And they'd done that at the beginning of every election year, um, and. This past year, 61% of people in January said they were better off than they were three years ago, which was uh, a record at least going back to the 1980s. No one had said that they were that much better off. So not that people weren't that better off after the Reagan Revolution, 84. People weren't that much better off after um, in the big Clinton economy, you know, 1996, I think even in 2000. Um, so th- that was a, a record number of people saying that they were that they were better off. 
And I mean, when we look at some of the, the, the core statistics we have, have things to back that up. So, um, you know, one of the things that they look at is like sort of prime age uh, labor force participation. Um, it had risen in 2019 above sort of its previous record, which was uh, just before the, the, the Great Recession and was on its way to making uh, an all time record. That would have been higher than w- what it was just before the dot-com bust. And most uh, economists thought that that was impossible. Let's explain what this uh, indicator is. Um, th- th- this is the weeds. Um, so people <laughs> know the unemployment rate, right? It's a it's a ratio. You look at everybody who says they want a job, and then you divide how many people don't have a job, and you'll get, you know, Maybe 8%, maybe 6%, right, something right, like right. that. There, then there's an employment to population ratio, which right. is sort of the opposite, right? You say, how many people are there and how many of them have a job? Right. Um, and so, you know, you can exaggerate this, right? In the campaign in 2016, Trump would sometimes look at this crude labor force participation rate and say, like, the real unemployment rate is, I don't know what he said, like 47%, right? <laughs> like every college student, every retired person, every housewife was was unemployed. Um, that's not, like, the right way to use the yeah. number, but it still matters. Right, and, and actually, I think better than just the raw employment to population ratio is you look at the number of people who are aged 25 to 54. So those are your kind of like prime working years. You know, if you're under 25, maybe you're you're doing some sort of education and that's, you know, you're making you better off. If you're older than 54, maybe you have like early retirement and you're better off. But most people, you know, um, kind of want to be working during 25 to 54 unless they're doing, unless they're taking care of, of children or, or relatives or something like that. Uh, most people in that range want to be working. And indeed, like what had been sort of, what it powered an increase in this ratio for several decades was uh, women moving into the labor force. That seemed to peak sometime around like the 2000, you know, era. And then from then on, uh, economists thought that it was actually going to drift down. And it was going to drift down because essentially uh, men, fewer men were, um, prime age men had jobs. So, you know, back in the 1980s or 1970s, basically like 98% of all prime age men had, you know, had jobs or were looking for one. Um, so only a few percentage weren't. And that's just slowly crept up for reasons that like, you know, um, supply side economists get really excised about. And we don't need to go in here. You know, this number had been going up, right? Uh-huh. Sometimes it would dip in a recession, but it was going up, up, up until about 2000. Then it starts drifting down Uh because there's a recession. Then it goes up again. But then the Great Recession starts before we regained the prior peak. Exactly. It goes way down. Then we start to recover, but participation is still way below where it was, even in in the Bush years, to say nothing of, of Clinton. And people wonder why that is. And so people on the right, you know, had their supply side theories, right? <laughs> the welfare state is too generous. Um, and then in 2016, uh, Obama's Council of Economic Advisors comes out with a report on this. And it's a, it's like a more progressive view mm. on the situation. So like they talk about mass incarceration, they talk about, you know, automation and people who don't have a lot of uh, formal schooling. You know, that like it's, it's, it's supply side economics for liberals. Right, right, right. right. And what they don't say is, well, if we just make the budget deficit bigger (laughs) and yell at the Fed, this problem will solve itself. Right. Um, 
But then Trump comes in, and that's basically what happens. Yeah, so the, and that's the argument. I mean, that's the argument I think I was making, you know, when I was on the, the weeds before and actually have been making for years is that um, – Although people on the right had, you know, these certain, you know, uh, supply side arguments about, you know, the welfare state and people on the left about, you know, like as Matt just said, the simple fact of the matter, I said, if if there were enough jobs and enough demand for labor, uh, employers would find a way to make it work. Right. I mean, even if you didn't have skills, they would train you. If you have been in jail, they would give you a second chance. If you were on drugs, they would you know, help you through rehab. Um, and these are the kind of things that happen when you have a super tight labor market. And for decades, they seem like impossible. Like what employer would do that? Like we need we need to have like these special training programs that pe- teach people how to code. But, you know, I, I think I was insistent on the premise that like that's not really true. And, you know, entrepreneurs jobs is to find a way to use people in some productive capacity. And if they have the incentive to do that, they'll do that. Um, so it was a big argument. And, and I, I think, you know, both on the left and on the right, people were really skeptical of that. Trump comes in and, and not, I think, really for any deep reason, but just because he was a massive, like, you know, booster of himself <laughs> says, all right, we're just going to do everything that basically, you know, would push the economy faster, make my numbers look better. So we're going to blow up the budget deficit. We're going to cut taxes. We're actually going to increase spending rather than cut spending. And then we're going to keep yelling at the Fed to take interest rates down to zero. And if they bring them above zero, I'm going to go on Twitter and like call the chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, horrible names. And in general, he just pushed every element of economic policy that we had um, to the max. And I think the, the feeling among most economists, you know, again, left and right, was that this was irresponsible and that what was going to happen was uh, we were going to get a bunch of inflation because these people were, there weren't enough people to be employed. Employers would run out of people to hire. They would try to raise wages, but they wouldn't be getting any more workers. And so the higher wages would just lead to higher prices. And then that would start off this sort of inflationary spiral that we saw in the 70s. But in fact, nothing like that happened. So like inflation stayed really low. And people just kept getting more jobs and employers just kept opening opportunities to more and more people. And so I don't want to say anything like that, that, that Trump understood these deep economics, but just it so happened that like he pushed the economy in ways that um, were extreme and, and the results were good. And we and we got a good test because he didn't he didn't repeal Obamacare. Right. Right. So like which like a lot of conservatives said was really bad, but he didn't (laughs) repeal it. He didn't repeal Dodd-Frank. He definitely didn't create like a job training program. (laughs) You know, so it's like I mean, it was interesting because it was a not that productive term in office except on this kind of demand side front. So you got a You got, I think, like an unusually clear test because. This the economy was doing well, and there's just not that many different things that changed in the policy world that you know could possibly be be responsible for it. And then the other thing that happened in in, in the labor market was a lot of the um, liberal states raised minimum wages, and that turned out to be okay, okay. because there was a lot of demand for. Work. I mean, people will probably argue forever with like complicated statistics as to whether like this helped or hurt or or whatever, but like it didn't, wages went up a lot sort of everywhere. 
And it just didn't make a huge difference. It certainly didn't derail the economy. And you can, you can argue about whether that is. Maybe you would think that, you know, the minimum wage never does or almost never does. Or you could take, like, I guess, more conservative opinions. Like, well, of course it didn't because, like, employers already wanted to raise wages. And, you know, that's probably why the, the political resistance to it collapsed. Um, but either, either side you take, I don't think it's important um, except to say that, like, uh, here was a policy that, that deliberately like raised wages, but did not like derail employment growth. And so, you know, I think the, the, the biggest lesson from that is that there's a lot more the economy can do. And I, I guess actually even the deeper lesson, and this is the one that, that people still don't quite get, is that for people at the bottom, this made a tremendous difference. So the Fed had a Fed listens tour. I mean, if you're if you're persuaded by this kind of stuff, uh, where it went around and talked to people in sort of um, marginalized communities about like you know what what was important to them, and they repeatedly said that like oh you know the there's an availability of jobs now that that just simply didn't exist before. There are people who felt like you know for whatever reason maybe they had been incarcerated they had trouble they hadn't been employed in years right that like nobody was just going to hire them that they were kind of like you know out, down on their luck for good but that that changed in sort of like 2018 2019 because employers were so desperate you know they were looking for people there were reportedly towns i think in in Iowa maybe i can't remember exactly that were like putting out ads for people to just to move to the town <laughs> to to work in uh, some of the RV factories and stuff like that there was there's was such desperation for employees that people who wouldn't have otherwise had opportunities got opportunities and that's that i think is the key and i think that's why you could see something that looks like it's moving, you know, on a smooth trajectory beyond what people thought was possible, but it changed qualitatively for people at the bottom, right? So bursting through the, like, what people thought maybe employment or unemployment couldn't go lower than 4.5% or, you know, prime age um, employment population ratio could never beat the peak that it did in 2000. Um, those are kind of like small statistical things. But the reality for people is that when that happened, when unemployment got that low, when the employment popula population ratio got that high, what was happening was employers were so desperate, they were taking people that the economists had just assumed weren't going to be taken for whatever reason. Uh, and that's life-changing for those people. And so I think the reason why you see these surprising numbers, like why there's so many people, especially at the bottom, say that the economy in 2019 was, was so good, that their life was better than it was three years ago, it was because they had these opportunities that they didn't have before because, you know, now they can get, you know, a job in a, you know, in a factory or a training or even though they have problems um, that they couldn't get before and they would have otherwise been, been out of their luck. And so I, I think you're going to come to this. But like my hope is and I, I wrote a column on this is that the the Biden administration sort of like takes up that same mantle. Right. And I mean, they, they obviously aren't going to have the same, you know, uh, I guess, philosophy is Trump, if you want to call it a philosophy, uh, <laughs> just sort of like boosting in any way that you can possibly boost. But but to say that, that there's a lot more that can be done than economists either on the left or the right thought uh, before Trump came in office and don't sort of revert back to this sort of defeatist thinking that, you know, you know, actually, I saw Rahm Emanuel just say that, you know, these jobs at, uh, you know, JCPenney are never coming back and we need to get these people coding. Well, well why? I mean, like, so, <laughs> so <laughs> there are plenty of jobs that came back, you know, in 2018, 2019 that people didn't think would come back or they'll come back in ways that you can't perceive. Right. Like, you know, uh, it's, whether it's Uber, whether it's the next version of something like that or people out there when 
demand is high enough, they're going to think of a way to hire these people. And you don't have to like just settle to say, well, unless they, you know, get their act together and learn how to code, they're going to be left behind. They don't need to be left behind. Um, you just need to sort of push demand uh, as hard as you possibly can. And maybe somewhere way out there, we'll get to the point where really, you know, no one else can be employed, but we don't know where that is. And clearly it's been shown it's much further than economists anticipated. You know, and something that I think the the COVID economy has sort of indicated, right, is we, we've had all these, um, you know, job losses in restaurants and to an extent, you know, hotels, things like that. And one consequence of that is that the, the aggregate productivity statistics have been soaring. <laughs> Uh, and that's like that's kind of an illusion, right? right? It's like I'm not actually more productive sitting here in, in the basement, but it's a it's a compositional effect, right. right? These these sectors that have been shut down are very low productivity sectors, and to me, it's a reminder that there's this kind of like embedded slack in the labor market that consists of all these people working food service jobs. Right. Where it's like, like it's obviously like it is good to have a job rather than to not have a job. But if we actually like were somehow like just we're, we're out of computer programmers, right? It's like you would teach the most diligent cooks and bartenders how to cope. Right. Like you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't need to like take a, an ex-offender or a drug addict right. or something like that. Like there's a smooth transition in, in the labor market from not employable to like low wage work to more skilled kinds of stuff. And we don't quote unquote need like pour over coffee shops, right? Like that, that, that exists because it's cheap to hire people. No, I think that's right. And I mean, um, that's a, that's a, an entirely, you know, I think more more fundamental argument, I think, you know, Ryan Avon has pushed that too, which is that some of the low productivity jobs we have are just a, a function of, of all of this slack or people not, they're not being enough demand. If you kept pushing the economy and so, you know, Google was just super desperate for people, you know, they would hire more of the geniuses and then that would put, uh, corporate firms would be, you know, a little bit more desperate. They couldn't get those people. So they would try to pick up some people who were previously more working class. And then those working class institutions would be more desperate. And they would pick up people who were previously unemployed at all. And so there would, people would slide up the scale if there was if there was enough demand. You wouldn't just hit like a hard, a hard wall where, you know, this lot of people are the only people who could possibly, you know, work at Google and no one else could. Or these people are the only people who were like, qualified to run, you know, factory jobs or high skill or, you know, high skilled un college educated jobs and no one else is that that you can you can train people, you can move people up up to do that. And that will happen. And as you do that, the entire economy will become more productive. But if there's no incentive to do that in the first place, if, if Google's not hiring like gangbusters, if Amazon's not hiring like gangbusters, then it doesn't pull up the rest of the line. And so go ahead and like, you know, push the parts of the economy that are humming to their fullest extent, and they'll sort of like drag drag up the rest, and then we'll see the kind of productivity kind of productivity growth that we saw. Maybe not as good as in the in the '60s or whatever, but probably at least as good as in the '80s, which would be better than what we've got now. All right, so let let's take a break, and then I'm gonna gonna skip past the pandemic and and talk about the current situation. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. 
Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So obviously, uh, we know that that kind of happy labor market that existed at the beginning of the year has been very disrupted uh, by by business closures and also by just people not wanting to to do stuff. Um, we had the CARES Act, which put a lot of money in people's pockets, seems to have uh, sort of worked better, I think, than people thought it would yeah. at the time. Uh, but it's expired now. And Republicans had been turning back to um, intense skepticism of government spending starting during the fall campaign. And I think uh, only more so if if Biden is going to be in the White House. It looks very hypocritical, I think, to a lot of liberals who saw people um, uh, really jazzed up about deficits when when Trump was in the driver's seat. Uh, but what's your what's your understanding of what's What's going on in, in Congress? Uh, well, so I think there are, there are a couple of things going on. So number one, I mean, if, even if you go back to sort of the, the original fight that we had over um, TCJA uh, and what happened sort of like in there, this is when the Republicans had like all three or, you know, the White House, Senate and um, the House of Representatives is there were sort of these, you know, um, hawkish fiscal conservative Republicans, right? But they tended to be like a sort of a small government type that we should have like lower spending and lower taxes. And then there was more sort of like just the, you know, it was like a Pat Toomey or, or somebody like that who was just a, a big, you know, we need to just cut taxes, dude, <laughs> you know, kind of Republican. And so they kind of agreed on that. And they came up with this complicated scheme uh, called, <laughs> called, uh, the destination-based cash flow tax that was supposed to make all the tax reform they did revenue neutral, it fell apart. Uh, they didn't know what to do. 
And then basically because Trump started screaming at people and <laughs> Paul Ryan started screaming at people, they were like, well, just pass it anyway. Just just, just do it and just, you know, do it live. No, just do it. <laughs> just do it with the deficit anyway. Forget about all of that. And that, I think, you know, um, along with Trump's sort of instincts, uh, that, that started a pattern. Um, we came up to a fight that was, I think, potentially over the debt ceiling and whether we were going to uh, like try to like cut spending, you know, which a lot of Republicans had had on the table. And Mnuchin was like, no, let's not do that. Let's give the Democrats what we want. And let's like buy Republican votes by doing a bunch of military spending, which is a whole nother group of Republicans who want to spend a bunch of money on the military, just, you know, always, right? Again and again, you saw through like, basically Trump's insistence on like trying to squeeze out as much pro-growth stuff that you had, a sort of steamrolling over any of the the Republican sort of resistance to to deficits. Now, I think what happened, uh, and then the CARES Act happened again, and there was the, the, the line, you know, I was sort of more intimately involved in that, the line that we used at that time to steamroll over the Hawks was, this is the moral equivalent of war, right? That we have been attacked. <laughs> And and that we have to respond. And then there are people like Tom Cotton and, you know, who just like just got all on board with, with this idea that we're at, we're sure. at war. We're at war the with China the China virus. The China virus. Yeah. We're at war with the China virus and we're going to win. We didn't win, like in the way that the administration had been telling people we we're going to win. Um, and then Trump's popularity seemed to be waning. And so there were a bunch of Republicans who were like, oh, my God, we bought into Trump's like insanity. Um, on the uh, premise that, you know, you know, he's just breaking all the rules, changing everything. Now everything's coming back down, sort of crashing back down to reality. He didn't beat COVID. He's not going to win re-election. And then when we go back home to our districts, we're going to face people who are like, uh, why did you buy into all of this extra spending? And you can't just point to Trump and say, well, you know, Trump said it was okay, so it's okay. And so, so they panicked and they, and they started to like uh, scramble back to their, you know, old uh, fiscal, fiscal hawk ways. I don't think, however, that that is all of the Republicans, right? So Ted Cruz is, is very much on the panicky uh, side of things. Um, worried about that, but not all Republicans are there. Uh, I don't think the I don't think the leader is there, although he's always very cagey about what he actually believes. You know, I don't think Tom Cotton is there. I think that they they kind of bought you know into what happened uh, under Trump, but like they're afraid of like how to go forward, like without any sort of any sort of support. And so I think what you saw is that there was some push in the you know Republican Senate, especially to do some kind of bill, even even before the election, you know, but it, they just couldn't get the entire caucus together because there were lots of people on the on the Ted Cruz side who were flipping out about like, we're just going to get crushed in our home districts for having bought into this. And Cruz, especially people like him have reason to think that is because um, that's exactly how they ran against the establishment after George W. Bush. They were like, the problem with Bush was that he neglected, you know, these core conservative values. Sure. It's like when when he's popular, he's the great conservative hero. When he loses, he's he's the betrayer. But so <laughs> I mean, I mean, the other thing that happened, right, is Trump himself, it, like Steve Mnuchin was trying to bridge some kind of gap between congressional Republicans and House Democrats. But the president was not 
like engaged in this in a very clear way. He he did some tweets. The tweets were not super coherent. So it it, it kind of fell apart there. I do think it it sort of looks to me in retrospect, like if Trump had just caved to whatever Pelosi wanted to do, but then had called it MAGA, uh-huh. that like he might have won. He might have won. Like the, the election turned out to be closer than it looked at the polling, particularly right. in the in the pivotal states. Like people like bipartisan deals. People like mm-hmm. getting checks with <laughs> Donald Trump's letters uh, on them. And he, he maybe should have done that. I mean, I knew this was like Democrats were very concerned. Like one reason Pelosi drove such a hard bargain was that Democrats, they weren't going to say they weren't going to do a deal, but they right. were concerned politically about the consequences of a deal. So she drew a very, very hard line. It seems to have, um, I would say in substance, probably backfired on her and in politics backfired on Trump that it fell apart. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, to insert how like McConnell was in this, I think, I think part of what was, you know, um, pulling Trump in different directions is Mnuchin just wanted to make a deal. And I think that he thought, and some people in Trump White House thought that if if they make a deal with Pelosi, you know, Trump still has enough juice to get it across the finish line. And McConnell's advice, and you can take for what it was to Trump, was whatever deal you think is, you're doing with Pelosi, she's going to make it so ball-busting for you that you're never going to get it through the Senate, right? And so, and, and so... But really ball-busting for McConnell <laughs> more than for yeah, Trump, right? Yeah, exactly, I mean, exactly. that, that's the sort of the nuance here, right? Exactly. It's like, uh, Trump doesn't care he doesn't if care. he would be giving in on some some sacred cow about SNAP funding levels. But, right. But many Republicans on the Hill would care. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and I mean, so there was, yeah, SNAP funding levels, and we're going to expand EITC and CTC, which, you know, um, maybe we'll go into later, but a big debate in the Republican Party over over that kind of stuff. People had to take very hard lines in, in opposite directions. But, um, but lots of that kind of stuff was going to be in there. And so that was going to create, like, a huge hurdle to get over over the Senate. And I think for reasons like you just said, it made obvious sense to Pelosi. It, it was potentially politically damaging. So if you're going to if you're going to do something that might damage your political chances, you want to get as much as you possibly can from it. And McConnell's reaction was, well, well, look, I mean, like this might help the president's chances or whatever, but it's just getting to the point where it's it, it's going to tear apart, you know, their caucus. And they try. I think that I think they were able to get like five hundred billion, you know, that they could get everybody to vote for. But like every every like hundred billion past that, you were losing senator after senator after senator. And so he was trying to get Trump in his in his mind to see the light about like what Pelosi was doing. Mnuchin was like saying, well, no, you know, we need to just like do whatever we can to get any package across. And Trump was sort of like torn back and forth and like indecisive as he normally is and sent out a bunch of tweets. But if he had been the Trump from, you know, a year ago who was just like, screw it, you know, I'm making a deal and all you boys better just fall in line. I think, I think there's a non-trivial chance he could have even gotten it then. Like even though his poll numbers were low and even though Republicans were freaking out, he, 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 he might have been able to get it. It would have been a squeaker, but like, um, but he might have been able to get it. Where that brings us now, though, is that like you're in a situation where Trump's gone. I mean, eventually. <laughs> and uh, and so that both that pressure and that coverage for like um, Senate Republicans is gone or Republicans in general. But like, you know, I, I talk more to Senate Republicans is gone. And so the, they're ones who, you know, like 
Cruz and Rand Paul, who didn't really want to go along with this anyway, you know, who no longer feel the need to do what the president wants. And there are other ones like Toomey who kind of, you know, wanted to, you know, wanted to go more deficit into more deficits, who no longer can just point to the president and be like, you know, maybe you're mad at me, base Republicans, but, you know, Trump said it was okay, so it's okay. Um, And so you need some sort of like different, different dynamic going forward. Uh, I don't know if you want to say more things right now, but it's it's long been <laughs> my position that like um, those Republicans who are still in the, you know, on the Toomey camp and there are, you know, there are many, I think it's probably, you know, at least half the caucus, you know, can be bought. There are things that they want. There are things that they like. They think that, you know, they're, they were very into <laughs> the, the tax, the tax reform. Tax reform, you know, the, you're not supposed to say right. tax cut, tax reform. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, well, that, 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 this is where I was going to go, is that the uh, question now becomes what what does Biden want, right? Mm-hmm. Right, Because all else being equal, obviously, Biden would like to have a robust COVID relief bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, Democrats have their asks on that. Biden also has his policy agenda, which is a lot of spend money on poor people, right. pay for it by by taxing the rich. Uh, Biden would like to not have a government shutdown in December. I mean, he won't be president then, mm-hmm. but it's, it's still happening. He would like to not have a debt ceiling crisis in, in August. Um, there's like a lot of, a lot of stuff going on and it points in different directions right. in terms of bargaining with, with Republicans over things. Um, and then, uh, the tax bill, TCJA, right. that's what it's called, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, for budget reconciliation reasons, has a bunch of provisions, some that expire next year, right. and then a lot that expire in, in 2025. When Obama was president, he really sort of fought to get taxes higher. I mean, he did other, many things happened in, in Obama's administration, but, you know, his big thing throughout every standoff was he wanted to get Republicans to agree to raise taxes on the wealthy, right. both because he felt that taxes on the wealthy should be higher and also because he felt – I think they felt that politically it would be good to have a bipartisan bill that raised taxes on the wealthy because he always had the option mechanically of letting the Bush tax cuts expire. Right. And then trying to cut taxes. Uh-huh. But like they, they didn't want to do it that way. I mean, for whatever reason. Uh, I, I've had many conversations. It's, it's a little unclear to me why they didn't want to do it that way, but they definitely didn't. Well, they said they, they wouldn't to, raise taxes on people below 250. So they had yeah. they wanted to keep that promise, I think, right? Well, but they but they they wanted to get Republican votes right. for a tax increase. Um and you know. Biden could go in a different way, but I've been, you know, I was sort of surveying uh, Democratic economists uh, over the past week, you know, people who who worked in the Obama administration, people who I think are likely to work in a Biden administration as to like what's their sort of baseline case. And they all said, you know, they wanted to get a relief bill. They wanted a bigger relief bill rather than a smaller one, but they thought a small bill of the kind McConnell's talking about would be helpful and they should do that if they can. And also that they feel the economy is basically on track, right? That the unemployment rate is going down, that the virus um, will probably hit a bump in the road this winter, but that the virus will go away come springtime with vaccines, and that they are not worried about the economy sliding into recession. 
And that just sort of brings me back to the 2019 point, which is that the, the last time these guys were uh, in, in the executive branch, that was sort of like the situation exactly. every, every year, pretty much. I, I mean, t- 2009 was, was a crisis year, right? But like their big thing was they halted the crisis, they got the economy growing again, and then it grew very steadily, all of which is true. And they like they wanted to say they were doing an amazing job. But I think if you look back at it, like we were just very far from full employment that whole time to the extent that like even years after Obama left office, like the economy kept growing, the, you know, the employment population ratio kept growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, we were really far away. And it would just be a huge missed opportunity to be saying, okay, four years from now, well, the unemployment rates, you know, 5.2%. Uh, and we're getting there soon, guys. Right. Um, and, and, you know, a much better option, I think, you know, if, if Democratic Party politicians listen to this podcast, uh, is to see that there is like a real merit in accelerating that process to not just have growth in 2021, but fast growth. Right. And so, and I think, you know, um, this is just my sense. I mean, I don't have as deep a connection to the, into, you know, Democratic Party politics or, or who's there, but it seems like, so the, the people who are most concerned about the deficit in the Republican Party are kind of like on the, on more of the right French, right? Um, they're like, you know, I guess, yeah, your Rand Paulist, your Tea Party, or just stuff like that. But the people who are most concerned about the deficit in the Democratic Party are in the center. Um, and usually in good, responsible administrations, it's the people in the center <laughs> who, run, who run things. Um, but that leaves you with an odd sort of, like, um, I guess, imbalance that, like, Democratic administrations are going to tend to be, like, more deficit-concerned. Than Republican administrations, because the Republican administration is going to pull from center right people like my, you know, like myself, who don't really care, <laughs> you know, that you know that much about the deficit or care or care much less than like than our right fringe, um, and and I think that was real. I mean, I think like so part of what was happening during the two um, thousands, early two thousands, is uh, they felt like, well, look, there the Obama administration felt like, look, there are several things going on here. There was an immediate crisis. But then there's sort of a long-term, you know, r- responsibility or fiscal responsibility that we need to meet. And so we're going to try to, like, you know, bridge those two gaps with some spending to help people, but also, you know, raise taxes on people who can afford it. And that will get us to, to pay down the debt. And that's the way to go towards the sort of, like, responsible, uh, uh, deficit hawkish, you know, deficit hawkish um End. And I think the the lesson here, number one, is that at least from a political point of view, the populists can tolerate uh, deficits. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think there are some more people we have to convince of this, but it is coming along that from an economic point of view, the U.S. economy can tolerate a lot more deficits as well. And the cost of not doing so, the cost of worrying excessively about, you know, fiscal responsibility now is that all of those people who um we pulled into the workforce from, say, 2015 to 2019, um, they won't come in or they won't come in for a decade or, you know, eight years from now. And that's a real difference in those people's lives. Right. Um, And so if we are if we set aside sort of a a concern about um, this, the deficit, you know, as a huge sort of impending issue and instead say, no, what we want to do is get 
as many people in the labor market as possible, get the economy in as fast as we're growing, and we'll actually try to partner with Republicans who are concerned about that instead of trying to negotiate with Republicans who want to shrink, you know, um, government, then we have a chance for like more growth. And I think, you know, I don't know who you're talking to. I, from publicly, it seems like maybe like Jason Furman and some other people are coming along. But then you hear like other Democratic officials and they seem to have the same old centrist line that, you know, you know, we need to do something in the short term. But over the long term, it's really about fiscal responsibility. And, and that just seems like opening themselves up for a missed opportunity. I mean, they'll have they'll probably have a decently growing economy and the same thing under Obama. But like that's not enough. <laughs> for people who are at the bottom, right? Because the people who have the least skills, the people who you know have had the most problems, they're going to be the very last ones to get employed. And so if you have a decently slowly growing economy, that's years and years and years and years for them. And we can like, you know, get back there faster. I mean, that's, you know, that's my belief and that we should just go for, you know, as intensely, intensely as possible, get as many people on board as we can get on board. And, you know, I think, you know, my Talks to Republicans say there are Republicans who want to do that, you know, who are more concerned about what in their mind produces growth. And it's not the same as in Democrats' mind. In their mind produces growth, which are tax cuts. But I think Democratic economists would agree that that helps, even if it doesn't help as much as the, as the things that they want, get all those people together on board with a, you know, let's get as many people in the workforce as we possibly can agenda. And, you know, I'm going to preach that <laughs> and we'll see if, if anybody picks it up. Yeah, let's let's take a break and, and then we're going to preach. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So one thing I think it's important for Democrats actually to understand when they when they think about this is that their own position on the deficit has changed in a slightly weird way that you could say what you want about Obama's deficit reduction efforts, uh, but he really was trying to reduce the deficit. Mm-hmm. He had all these ideas about uh, repealing Bush tax cuts, 
pairing tax increases with entitlement cuts, bending the cost curve of Medicare. And, and in fact, the deficit went down quite a bit uh, under Obama. So they, they both wanted to reduce the deficit. They put forward plans to reduce the deficit, and they succeeded in, in reducing the deficit. Biden is not a radical break with Obama, obviously. He was Obama's vice president. It's a lot of the same people. But what he has is a bunch of plans that are, quote unquote, paid for, right? Which is to say that Trump took office, made the deficit much, much larger. And then what Biden is proposing to do is spend new money and pay for it by partially rescinding tax cuts that Trump did. Which is fine. Like, if if you're if just all you're trying to do is if people ask you, they're like, how are you going to pay for that, Mr. Vice President? Yeah. Like, he has an answer to that question. But there is no actual policy objective right. of reducing the deficit embedded in any of those plans. But what you have is a bunch of programs that Biden and his team presumably believe in uh, that they think will be good for people, uh, an expanded child tax credit, uh, housing assistance, um, this healthcare stuff, uh, money for poor schools. I mean, they've got this whole big raft of ideas, and they're just looking for a way to get it done, right? Right. And in uh, there's a universe on the other end of Nate Silver's probability distribution where we have 56 Democratic senators and an expanded House majority. And in that universe, the Biden plans would be a totally good idea, right? Like he's like, he's doing, I mean, you might not agree yeah, with yeah. them, but I mean, it, <laughs> it, it would make logical sense, right? Like, logical sense, if there's yeah. big Democratic majorities, that would be the way to get those programs passed. Uh, but what you instead have is a very thin House majority probably a thin Republican Senate majority. Either way, you have Joe Manchin running around television saying they're never ending the filibuster. So you're going to have to do deals. And if you ever listen to what Republicans actually care about, (laughs) like the way to get money for a new program would be to let them do some tax cuts that they feel strongly about and you don't happen to agree with, right? But like it says, it isn't, things don't have to be paid for. They have to be bargained for. Exactly, exactly. And and in fact, and I mean, you know, I don't know how much to go into this because disrupt the priors of whatever the audience, but like back in the, uh, the end of the Obama administration, um, McConnell used to complain about this incessantly, which was that like Barack Obama really had like a philosophy about how, you know, like government should be run and what we should do. And like everything was sort of like kind of built or centered around that philosophy. And McConnell's point was that the Senate just doesn't work like that. The the Senate works with like getting people to agree to vote for things. And that like, if you want to get people to agree to vote for things, you have to give them things that they want, even if you think those things are stupid. And like, that's like, that's sort of how, how this process works. And that like, just giving people a long lecture on why they should see things your way doesn't actually work in the Senate. And so that was his explanation for like why why it was so hard to get anywhere. And in fact, you can get in and take this for what it's worth, he repeatedly said that Biden was different, that Biden, you know, understood the Senate, you know, he had been there a long time, and he kind of got that like, look, you know, um, Senator X really cares about, you know, this deduction for capital equipment. Let's 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 get this deduction for capital equipment, and let's let's put together a package that like does things that are good for the economy, even if it includes some things that you might think 
are stupid. And I think that like you 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 could piece that together. And if you if you also see how fractured I guess um, Republicans are about all kinds of things. Like ironically, like people like Mike Lee, who are a little bit, you know, trying to trying to convince Mike Lee to be okay with the deficit, but uh, you know, this is a long, long battle. I got a lot of friends in that office. Um, but one of the things he is okay with is um, like spending more money on kids, right? And so, like, um, you can sort of like get some of his support. He wants to do that. Uh, then Toomey wants to like cut some taxes, and then like you can build together this sort of coalition that's around what various people think is important, even if it doesn't have like a solid, like that same sort of like solid philosophical core, like this is what we're doing. Now, I don't, I don't know how that plays anymore. Like, I mean, one fear I think that, you know, I thought Democrats probably had was that like, uh, it wouldn't play well in the mainstream media because the mainstream media loves like, um, these sort of like grand philosophic plans and big bargains and, you know, commissions, um, and all that kind of stuff and sort of looks down their nose at like the log rolling type things. But what I think the last couple of years has taught us is the cost of not log, of not log rolling, of not actually getting the really good stuff that you want done done is high. Uh, that people really suffer from that because you were, you were insistent upon some sort of like purity of, of philosophy. So I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, to, <laughs> I, I guess I'm to put this a, a slightly different <laughs> different way from, from how you did is that, you know, I do think that Obama's approach was very focused on what did Republicans say, right? Like what had they said in the past? And Republicans had said very frequently that they believed that out of control entitlement spending was a big problem in the United States of America. And Obama had sympathy for that opinion. Right. He wasn't as worried about it as they were, <laughs> but he thought it made sense as a concern. Like in his book, in The Audacity of Hope, he says he thinks that makes sense, right? Like in Hamilton Project uh, speeches in 2007, you know, he and Bob Rubin, like this is what they're they're talking about. This is a thing they think Republicans are maybe right about. So he wants to do a deal that's centered around that. And the problem is that Republicans, uh, not because they're Republicans, but because they're people, are just like a little bit full of shit. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, like people say things when you ask them, like what's going on. But like, we're not, you don't need to act dumb about this. Like we have seen what happens when Republicans are in office many, many times, and they have difficulty reaching politically viable agreements to cut spending, but they think it's very important to cut taxes. And so they, they try to find a way to cut taxes, right. right? And like what that way is winds up being different under different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And like if Joe Biden is president, he can say, we can cut taxes if you want to. Mm -hmm. But the way you cut taxes is you have to do this thing right. that, that I want, <laughs> that I right? Want, yeah. and, and But like, that's how it is, right? So it's like with, with Trump, you were talking about, right? The original plan for tax cuts wound up being completely different exactly. from the plan that they did because you, you have goals <laughs> and you have flexibility. And just like Republicans think taxes are really bad. <laughs> I, you know, like, I don't know. Um, but- you know, it's a tricky course of action because, like, we were talking about Mnuchin negotiating with Pelosi, right? And the way the political system works is that, like, if a deal gets done and the deal benefits the economy, that winds up being a win for the president, 
like almost regardless of what the content is. Right. So to get a deal, you sort of have to let the opposition in Congress like take you for a ride. Mm-hmm. You know, right. like Trump, Trump, I think, would have gotten reelected if he had just done a giant deal with Pelosi. But if you scored that deal, that would have been like a really good deal for Pelosi and a really bad deal for like philosophical conservatism. And I, I think Biden probably faces a similar choice that Republicans, like they're, they don't want Joe Biden to be a popular and successful president, <laughs> particularly. So you got to give them a lot if you want to get stuff done. Yeah. And so, and so I'll go back to when, uh, when, when Pelosi and Mnuchin did their, um, I think debt ceiling deal that increased spending a bunch and increased domestic spending a bunch that made, you know, some uh, fiscal conservatives' head explode. Um, the Mnuchin, I think, philosophy, and this was was my philosophy. I wrote about this was the way you should negotiate with Pelosi was that you should give her everything that she wants. <laughs> like that's the style of negotiation. I mean, like not in just some insane sense, like if they just keep coming back with like crazy stuff. But like they have a set of objectives that they want to achieve. That that's like within their sort of like these are our primary objectives, and that you should basically just be willing to go with that because. The good of having a deal is totally in your court, right? It's totally in Trump's court. You know, um, one, because a shutdown would be disastrous and we will always be blamed on the president. Um, and two, because um, a booming economy would be better, you know, for the president. And, and, and three, a booming economy is good. And I think actually Mnuchin kind of appreciated that um, more than um, some Republican, you know. Again, he's kind of a, a centrist, you know, Wall Street, you know, heavy Republican. So he kind of gets that. But like... Um, and so, and so just, just give in on these things and like, you know, um, know that like getting this thing over the finish line is the win for you. And, and they did that. And I think, you know, that kind of stuff didn't get reported on that much because it didn't fit with anybody's narrative. The conservatives didn't want to talk about it because they thought they got rolled. Um, you know, the Democrats didn't want to talk about it because like, you know, it seemed like, you know, uh, Trump was being reasonable or something like that. Well, that's just in those kind of situations where Congress, right? It's like it's like you just take the win and move on. You take the win and move Cause on because, like, because yeah. like you don't want to blow the deal up, right? Uh-huh. By being like, "Oh, this is amazing." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I think that is right. Um, and so, but but like that that I think was the appropriate way way to go, or at least appropriate stance to have. Um, and it's difficult. I mean, it did strain it did strain um, Mnuchin's relationship with sort of uh, more conservative Republicans. Um, but I think overall it was beneficial for the economy and it would have been beneficial for the president. I mean, quite frankly, if, you know, because of that type of negotiation on Mnuchin's part, if COVID hadn't happened, he probably would have got reelected. And so, um, so you should take that in hand and you should think that like, this is something that like does get confused is that like, okay, so, um, Republicans would obviously prefer to, uh, have a Republican president because they would get more of the things that they want, but like their own reelection and getting their own agenda passed is, is more important <laughs> to them than that, because like, that's them, right? I mean, there's an element of, of just like, of like singular selfishness about each sort of, sort of member of Congress. And so, you know, if, if, if Pat Toomey is going to get the tax plan that he wants and he's going to win re-election in Pennsylvania because he's this great bipartisan hero, that's good, right? I mean, I mean, you know, even if Joe Biden remains president, that's good for Pat Toomey. And like, you know, he, there, there's a certain selfishness of that, that like, that like goes beyond that. And I think that's true for like 
most people who are like closer to the center. If you're closer, if you're more on the wings, you have to worry about getting primaried if you're not conservative enough. And then, of course, your extreme objectives are never going to get, you know, through a Democratic president. So, of course, you know, your only hope is to get a Republican president. But if you're close to the center, right, you can get your objectives and you can win general election <laughs> uh, right. on the basis of having done this sort of like awesome, you know, like bipartisan thing where you got a bunch of stuff that you want to get. And so, so uh, yeah, so I think the so what are we next. So what what are we talking about here? I mean, I mean, my my just sort of baseline assumption is all these expiring provisions of TCJA are things uh, like they wouldn't have been in there in the first place unless Republicans in Congress thought they were good ideas right. that would be worth giving. I mean, who knows what, right? I mean, we we can't do a legislative negotiation here, right. but that like these are things that in exchange for making them permanent. Republicans in Congress would do something right. because they're in there for some kind of reason. Yeah, and I think and I think especially when you come to uh, there are a lot of these business provisions and there are a lot of these things about expensing for capital that are really important to business minded conservatives. Um, but so what what is expensing for capital? <laughs> so expense so normally what business so but businesses play taxes are on their profits and so your profits are your revenue minus your cost. Revenue is pretty straightforward; it's the money you take in. But then there comes a question about what are your costs? And it's very clear that labor is a cost. It's very clear that supplies are a cost. But then when we come to investment, it's unclear about what exactly counts as a cost. And the way it is traditionally done is that the cost of your investment is actually only the amount that depreciates every year. And so even if you spent $100 billion, so you're like um, Amazon or someone, so you spend like $100 billion in investment, that doesn't actually get counted as like a cost in the year that you did it, only the amount that sort of depreciates or like erodes in value over time counts as a cost. So they might get to count like 10 billion in the first year and then, you know, 9 billion in the second and on and on until the entire 100 billion they invested was exhausted. So the idea is essentially I traded money for a building. Mm -hmm. So there's no cost right. because I have the building. But the building deteriorates over time. Right. And, that's, and so my cost is the deterioration of the building. Yeah, that's a, yeah your cost is the deterioration of the building. And so for uh, a number of reasons, the most the most straightforward is that the the actual depreciation schedules on, on buildings are extremely long. They go up to like 39 years, um, which, you know, a lot of uh, economists and business people argue is just way too long in the modern economy. That things become obsolete more quickly than that. But also for a more sophisticated economic reason, which is like the time value of money, it's causing having somebody stretch the depreciation out over time like that makes investment more expensive than it otherwise would be. And a way to think about it is, is if you borrowed money to, to make this investment, you would not only lose each year the depreciation, but you'd also be paying interest each year. And that sort of like adds to your cost. And so the fact that you only get it over time makes it cost more. And the riskier the investment is, the greater that cost is. And so people who are thinking that we need like, you know, capital investment in risky alternatives, um, having to depreciate it over time where it might become obsolete very fast and where if you were borrowing money, you'd have to pay a high interest rate, um, discourages that type of investment, discourages people from just going whole hog um, and investing as fast as they possibly could. And so what a lot of um, business-minded Republicans want is to say, okay, you can just go ahead and count um, all the investment that you do 
in year, you know, in year 2021 as a cost in year 2021, you write that off your taxes. Um, what that would mean practically for a lot of companies is as long as they're like investing like gangbusters, um, their current sort of tax liability would be really low. And right, so, so fast growing <laughs> companies would be not really paying taxes. Would not be really paying taxes. And you might, you know, this this can get people really upset in the news, but the the point- Yeah, I mean, this how, this comes up with Amazon all the time, <laughs> yeah. right? Because Amazon, well, because A, because we've had accelerated uh, depreciation for the past few years. And there's also, there's a lot of weird R&D tax credits. They there's a lot R&D. of stuff there, right? So, so Amazon obviously is a big company and people will be like, Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. Why doesn't Amazon pay taxes? <laughs> and the reason is that Amazon, uh, if you look at it, right, the, the growth of Amazon is stupendous. Mm-hmm. They're not sitting on a fixed pile of capital and reaping profits. Right. They're taking in a ton of money and then they're spending it all <laughs> on just like on armies of robots and warehouses and and conquering the world. Right. Um, and so, I mean, populist-minded people hate this. <laughs> <laughs> right, populist minded people hate this, but business minded conservatives are like, that's exactly the company that we want, right? right? So that we want, we don't, you know, we want the company that's going to plow as much money into investment as we possibly want. They're the ones who should be paying the, lo- you know, a lower tax rate rather than companies who, and the opposite thing is, so rather than companies who say invested a long time ago, right, um, but then are just still sitting on like depreciation that they did from something like, you know, in 1990 or whatever like that. Um, and earning right, I, I built this office in 1997. Yeah, uh, taking a tax break. <laughs> yeah, still getting a tax break today. So no, give it now to the people who are still investing now. And it's a hard thing to get by one because you have to go through this complicated, you know, discussion about like depreciation schedules and stuff like that, which bores a lot of people. And two, because then the 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 headlines that come out of it are the fastest growing companies wind up paying the, the least taxes, and the fastest growing companies are are almost always the most valuable ones. Um, and so, like that, that looks bad. But like, um, it's very important <laughs> to, to to conservatives who think that like you know investment is business investment is like the thing that they want. And so, those provisions are going to expire. And like, I think that the uh, a lot of Republicans will be would be very interested in in getting stuff like that, um, you know, back on you know back on the table. Um, there are going to be some individual provisions that expire. Um, I'd have to like look back at exactly what they are. So I actually spent at the tax foundation almost my entire time exclusively on, <laughs> on uh, what was going to be done about some of this expensing stuff, because that, that was such a priority of, um, I mean, that was a priority for us because when we ran our models, that was basically um, what made all the difference in sort of in long run growth. Um, and some of the individual stuff, and this is kind of point we've been trying to make for years, uh, doesn't really, doesn't really matter that much. Um, <laughs> so. Right, but I will say, I will say though, I mean, like this is to the point, right? So, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of wealthy individuals mm-hmm. who are important in Republican Party politics. And there's a lot of individual tax cuts in the bill mm-hmm. that even if the tax foundation did not think they were that important, <laughs> uh, they were important to someone. They were, they were, that's true. And, and that's why it's there. And I mean, again, I mean, it's, it is, it's like a big part of, of the, the takeaway I want here. I, I want people to understand that the possibility exists here. And the possibility is not to ask Carl what he thinks should be done, <laughs> but is genuinely to ask Pat Toomey, mm-hmm. to ask Tom Tillis, mm-hmm. to ask, I don't know the names of the Republicans <laughs> from Oklahoma, 
Um, but to see, right? right? It's like you gotta, you gotta, you have to see what it is people want, uh-huh. and you have to know what it is you want. Yeah. And then you have to try to do a deal where you do what you want, and they get to do what they want. Right. And so, I Ezra and I talked about this in the past, right? But there's like there's like two versions of the like Joe Biden deal maker narrative, and one version is that like he's a nice guy. And like a warm, friendly person who has a lot of relationships on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And that's not gonna work. Like that's not that's not why things happen. Right. Uh, the other version is that Biden is just a guy who has fewer, he's not like at like the Donald Trump zone, <laughs> but he's a guy who has fewer clear convictions <laughs> than Barack Obama, right? He's been in politics forever. I don't think it is super duper clear what like Bidenism amounts to out of all that. Like he has just kind of gone along with the Democratic Party as Democrats have had different ideas about different things. And he's similar to Mitch McConnell in that way. Like he's a he's a legislative leader, not an ideologue. And it gives him the possibility to do that kind of work where you try to count up Mm. like which tax ideas is there a lot of enthusiasm for among Republicans who are inclined to make deals because they're in, you know, right. they're in purple states or, or whatever, whatever else is. And it, and it's like, you just, you have to do it. <laughs> like it's, it's politics. And I feel like politics has become this kind of like lost art in, <laughs> in politics. And it's like why politics is not working that well. Um, and like, who knows if it'll work, right? Like I, I also feel like Republicans are being, a little odd at the moment, like not admitting the election is over and stuff like that, which makes it challenging to do to do deals. But like the stakes are pretty high. Like that's how, like the system is what it is. And that's the way it works is this kind of like unprincipled dog rolling. No, and I think that's right. And I mean, I think you had guys, and I mean, it was really popular. I mean, from, from, from our side, John McCain was just like, you know, blood and guts against this kind of stuff, you know, this kind of log rolling stuff. And then I think Obama was disinclined towards it, um, towards a more like, no, what are like our core philosophical things? But like, um, it just so so happens that like, it's very difficult to run um, the legislative system like that. And running the system matters. And I think that like Biden sort of gets that. That's actually my my biggest hope behind Biden. He gets it like, just, just making the machine of government run takes skill um, and is important for it to happen and more important than like, you know, any sort of purity uh, uh, to a particular vision. Um, I happen to think it's gotten harder uh, because of like the dominance of like cable news and stuff and people always like want, you know, some sort of like narrative. They want some sort of like the thing they can easily grasp where if you're like, you know, here are these, you know, 17... (laughs) unrelated things that, that we all pulled together uh, in an omnibus bill to get this thing over the hill, then people kind of groan at that. But 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 the, I want to perhaps argue that they shouldn't groan at that, and that that's like a real way to get things done. And as we can see, you know, over the last couple of years, getting things done in a way that expands the economy makes a very big difference in the lives of real people. And we should like applaud that. 
Okay, thank you so much, Carl. Uh, this is a really great discussion. I think it really sets up the, the whole next four years project uh, really, really well. Uh, I wanted to say uh, before I, I let you go here in the audience um, that um, – this is actually going to be my last day working as a writer at Vox.com. Uh, I'm starting an exciting new project that you will hear about soon, uh, as soon as it's ready to go. But I am going to continue to be hosting The Weeds. I will be back on Tuesday with Dara uh, and some guests. We're going to be doing this next four years series uh, through to Inauguration Day. So I'm really glad to keep doing this show. It's been a really fun run at Vox as a whole. Uh, you know, I've been doing this as the longest job that I've ever had. I'm glad to keep the connection up. I'm I'm so proud of all the work we did together, but I'm really excited about this next chapter in my life as a writer. Uh, so, you know, watch this space for more on that. So thank you so much, Carl, for joining us. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Uh, thanks to Jackson Bierfeld for uh, editing. And thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. And The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.